At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to uh, the TFL Classics podcast. I am Brendan, and this is Case filling in for Tommy today. Yeah, which is nearly like Tommy, just uh, slightly shorter and less knowledgeable. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know. <laughs> That's debatable, I guess, but it uh, depends on the topic we're talking about. If we're talking about trucks, I, I would go to Case before I'd go to Tommy. But um, <laughs> British cars, though. It's Tommy yep, all the way. Uh, absolutely, yep. <laughs> but, yeah, so Tommy's out this week, but we do have a really good podcast for you today. We're talking about the forgotten off-roaders. So these are off-roaders that, you know, were really good at one point in time, but for some reason everybody just kind of forgot they existed and or they just may have disappeared off of our roads. Yeah, and it's a cool subject because, well, off-roading is not getting any smaller in terms of a hobby, and a lot of the classic go-to off-roaders that people think of first are getting expensive. So these are not only forgotten, not only unique, something that could set you apart on the trail, but they're also potentially a little bit more affordable. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I think just about every single one of these that we're going to talk about you can get pretty easily for under 15000 yeah. bucks and go and take it straight onto the off-road trail and have yeah. a blast. Yeah, maybe a, a farm-fresh, trail-ready one. Probably, you know, probably not a concourse version of all of them that you would get for ten grand, but at least with some amount of rust, you could get a version of all of these <laughs> for under ten grand. I, I think just about all of these will have some amount of rust. Oh, yeah. yeah Especially there's... if you're living out in the Midwest. <laughs> Yeah, you're going to have a little bit of rust. Well, there's a lot of American vehicles on this list, so yeah, yeah, you're you're definitely going to have some rust in there. Well, well, getting into it, starting off at number 10, we have the AMC Eagle. Yeah, and what a strong start that is. Produced from 1980 to 1988, uh, you could get it in a sedan, a coupe, or a wagon, but obviously the wagon is the coolest version. Oh, of course, yeah, and this was actually based on the same platform as the AMC Concorde. Um, and what I think is interesting is in 1981, you got the addition of the SX4 and I'm trying to pronounce this correct. The Camback? Camback? Is that what it is? And People will let us know. Yeah, so they were kind of like the entry-level version that was based on the AMC Spirit. So AMC at the time thought having an off-road-ish SUV was so important that they based it off of two different vehicles. They had a huge line of these off-road sedans and wagons and even convertibles. And what an era for American cars. AMC really had some very interesting products in their lineup, and this is one of the coolest. I I think it's aged pretty well because you just don't see stuff like this around. Uh, And also, pretty funny, in 81 and 82, they had a convertible version called the Sundancer. Imagine that. Yep. Yeah, we got a picture of that too, the next one. Uh, Yeah, the Sundancer, it was actually like a... Uh, option I think that you could get at the dealerships. I don't think it came necessarily from the factory. Um, 
But yeah, they were pretty cool. If you want to click over the next image, it'll, the people on YouTube will show us, yeah. or we'll get to Look see that. that. Look at that thing. It's almost kind of wow. like a T-top with a Landau top on the back. It's very interesting looking. If that's not an aspirational vehicle, I truly don't know what is. And for those of you that might be uh, confused about what exactly the Eagle is, if you haven't seen it before, uh, basically they're four-wheel drive cars, sedans, wagons, as you see here, a convertible. This was, in fact, the first domestic U.S.-built four-wheel drive vehicle with independent front suspension. But there's some actual trail-ish pedigree built into these. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Yeah, it, it is. Um, I mean, so much so that Four Wheel Magazine said in 1980 that the AMC Eagle was indeed the beginning of a new generation of cars, which I think is really <sighs> interesting because we didn't have all-wheel drive cars prior to the AMC Eagle. So this really was a trailblazer in the time. I mean, even Subaru wasn't really doing it wasn't really a common thing yeah. to have a, a regular car like this that was four-wheel drive. I don't know if Four-Wheeler Magazine's 1980 statement about this being the new generation of cars, the beginning of a new generation of cars. I'm not sure that that quite came true, although it depends, because some people say that this was kind of a precursor to crossovers. If you look at it that way, then maybe, maybe they got that right. Yeah. And so... The other thing that I like about these is the interiors. So the interior on them, oh. it, it's full of like wow. wood and brown leather. It's, it's full very, of wood and brown. <laughs> yeah, it's very like late 70s, early 80s on the inside. And it's just, it's a classic look. Like it's a, actually a pretty comfortable car to drive. They're not super fast, but they're fairly capable off-road with giving you that extra ground clearance. It really did look like a lifted 70s sedan which is just kind of crazy i mean lazy boys for seats shag carpet across the floors more wood in the dash than in the inside of most people's homes i mean it's uh yeah it's cool yeah it's very cool i think uh i think these are vehicles that if you were to take it to a car show or have it on a trail if what you're going for in any capacity is is looks and standing out You'd be hard-pressed to do better than this. Absolutely. Especially with all that wood. And even on the wood on the outside. And this was <laughs> yeah. actually the last vehicle made by AMC. And that's why they kind of switched it into Tragic. its own brand, yeah. calling it the Eagle brand. So some of you may know, like, the Eagle Talon or the, I don't know, what were some of the rebranded Chrysler <laughs> Eagles out there. But that is where this came from. It just switched into its own brand, which that died too, unfortunately. Yeah. So a pretty cool, bright spot in AMC's history. Uh, one of the vehicles from AMC that I think has left uh, one of the most lasting impressions. And for number nine on our list, moving on to the next, another forgotten off-roader, the Dodge Ram Charger, which Absolutely. is a very, very cool vehicle made to compete with the Bronco and like the K5 Blazer. Ram and Chrysler, they had to get their foot in that door. Didn't quite go as well for them as it did for Ford with the Bronco and even Chevy with the Blazer, but they tried their hand. Yeah, these came out in 1974 and were based on the D-Series truck. Um, and they were actually also sold under Plymouth as the Trailblazer. And the, trail Duster. Oh, I'm sorry. You're right. The yeah, Trail, trail the, Duster. Trailblazer um, trail is... <laughs> that's a Chevy thing. Something else entirely. But... Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, they were actually there were actually two generations of the Ram Charger that didn't look drastically different. Um, the first generation was 1974 to 1980, and that's what we have pictured up here. And the thing that I think is most interesting about the first few years of the Ram Charger is, did you know that the roof was optional? Yeah, it came from the factory as a convertible. Didn't even have B pillars or yeah. C pillars. Nothing. It just had. It was it was a basically a an SUV with a windshield and imagine, two doors. Imagine imagine not selecting that option. Right. Seems like a misstep. <laughs> yeah, I think that's interesting. Here's so, one with the top off. Yeah, so you could order it from the factory if if you're watching on YouTube. We've got a picture of it sitting here, and it it literally looks like somebody chopped the roof off <laughs> of a Ram Charger. But that is how they came from the factory. If you didn't order the roof option. Yeah, and then the second generation had a welded steel roof instead of a removable one, which takes a lot of the fun out of the equation. Uh, but you had quite a bit in terms of engine options. So a base engine would have been a 3.7 liter Slant 6. Uh, not an exciting engine. But they but are known for their reliability, those Slant 6s. Yeah. yeah, I had, to be I had a D-series truck, and that's what everybody would tell me. Oh, those are legendarily reliable. Everybody in the comments was talking about the reliability of those slant six engines. Which is great until you get passed by everything on the road. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, that truck was slow. I can't even imagine it if was. it has an entire steel roof on the back, how much slower it is. Yeah, and I'm sure it's not any better. And then you could also get a 5.2 or a 5.9 liter V8. Definitely the cooler choice, obviously. Sure. Who doesn't love V8s? Yeah, and I think a version of that 5.9 eventually ended up making it into you know, like the Dodge uh, Ram pickup trucks and the Dodge Dakota eventually and the Jeep Grand Cherokee 5.9 Limited, um, obviously in a much more advanced form. But that just kind of goes to show you how long-lived that 5.9-liter engine was before they finally discontinued it, what, in like the early 2000s? And this is also back in the era, too, when people drove their off-roaders with manual transmissions. So you could get these with manual transmissions, anything from a 3-speed to a 5-speed Man, having one of these old Ram chargers in good shape without rust, which would be hard to find, but with a five-speed and a and a V8, that'd be cool. Could you imagine, wasn't a three-speed like a three on the tree? Oh, yeah, back in the day, whatever yeah, three-speed they probably had on there, I I'm think sure it was. it was. Could you imagine going off-roading and having to shift yeah. with, with a column, column shifter? Column shifting like a station wagon? That'd be, I, that'd be something wild, for sure. I can't even imagine. It like, it's hard enough to go off-roading with a manual as it is, <laughs> but then adding in the fact that it's on the column on top of that. It would feel strange. Yeah, yeah. it would. I, yeah, I can't even imagine. Well, well, I wanted to, so since you know we haven't had you on the podcast before, I wanted to ask you about your fleet. So you have some interesting vehicles. Mm. and Debatable. <laughs> I think they're interesting because I don't have I to drive them that. every day. Yeah. So Case has, <laughs> as some of, if you've watched the TFL Classics channel, you have probably seen loads and loads of Case's Corvette. But a lot of people don't realize that you have a few other vehicles too, right? Yeah. Well, if you've been watching Classics for a while, you've probably seen way, way too many videos on my truck. Um, yeah, the truck's still good. Uh, actually, recently, we've had a couple intense cold snaps here in Colorado. She would figure, you know, Colorado obviously gets cold. But uh, we've had especially cold days considering that it's the front range. Usually doesn't get that cold here. Um, so I had to do a little bit of tweaking on my truck just to make it happier in the cold because 
Um, it's a, an old five-speed 12-valve Cummins. It's hot-rotted a little bit. The fuel pump timing is advanced, so it doesn't love the cold. Um, but I added a uh, fuel heater element that helps with just keeping warmth in the fuel system because I have a lift pump that moves the filter to the frame instead of under the engine bay. So um, j- the truck is doing well <laughs> to, to try That's to avoid to getting too in the weeds with it. Yeah, the truck is doing well. I mean, the, the, the Corvette's vehicle, doing well. The vehicle of yours I'm most interested in, that's probably because I never get to see it, is the Mercedes. <laughs> There's a reason you never see it, because it almost <laughs> never works. It's funny. Every time you fix something, two more things break. It's kind of the nature of having an old German car. That was what, my, what year is your Mercedes? It's a 1973 280 SEL. Okay. Um, I actually thought it was a 72 for a long time, and then I finally got the, the documents for the car. And eh, it's actually... Uh, it's a 73. It was my great-grandfather's car. I love that car. I never would have picked a Mercedes for myself just because, it, you know, every story that you hear about maintenance on German cars, um, all of it rings true for that car especially. So it's a, it's a pain. But when it works, it's fantastic. And someday um, when it warms up a little bit and there's not any chance of snow on the roads, you will see it. That'd be great. If, have, you, have you ever seen it? I have never seen it. Huh. Well, yeah. I've, I've seen it in, you, you and Tommy <laughs> in did videos, a video yeah. it, but I've never actually seen it in the metal, in, it, it'll in happen. the leather, leathery The, the occasional goodness. Friday when I wear my nice shoes and in uh, my nicer pair of pants, maybe, you know, weather, if the weather is good and I'm feeling good, um, every once in a while, it'll be parked out there, but not often. Corvette, on the other hand, I drive more than the truck so long as there's not snow on the roads and that car is phenomenal are you bored with it yet Uh, not even close that that car offers me the most fun for for the least amount of having to do things for it of any vehicle that i've ever owned if that makes sense the maintenance on it is pretty easy it drinks a lot of fuel but it's so much fun and it asks at least so far very little from me as an owner, operator, maintainer. Nice. But what about you with your fleet? I noticed that there's a big bad 2500 Suburban out there. Uh, yeah, my, well, my 2500 Suburban, um, it's back, but it needs to go to the mechanic because it's got a hum coming from the front end. So it's got a brand new differential put in it. Uh, but I will very soon be getting that up to the mechanic and having him take a Take a peek as to what's going on in that front end, because I need to know before yeah. I take it on any longer drives or anything like that. But I actually I kind of went a little buy crazy this week. I bought oh yeah I bought two vehicles for me and one for my brother. <laughs> okay, so, what'd you get? Uh, for me, I bought a another mini, a two thousand another mini. Yeah, I bought it. I so this will be my second mini. Double the unreliability. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a two thousand six as well, just like my other one, and it's. Uh, been in a little bit of a front end accident, so I'm thinking. But just a minor front end. Yeah. Luckily, there's nothing important in the front end of that car. <laughs> yeah, there we go. <laughs> for its for its running. Um, Something I might turn that into an off roader. I don't know. It seems crazy. I know turning a mini into an off roader, but uh, I don't know. I might I might go that route with it. Do something we'll radical. Yeah, something crazy because I got it super cheap because of the front end accident. Yeah. Um, and then just today, I actually bought a. 1993 Honda Del Sol. 
Oh, wow. Which I am pretty, Also an aspirational car. Yeah, pretty darn excited about. <laughs> it's 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 clearly lived a rough life. It's got clear coat As peeling most everywhere. Have. As most uh, do. It's got a giant coffee can muffler out the back, so it sounds like a Par typical, for the course. typical ricer machine for yep. sure. Um, but yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting. I know it's basically a Civic where you can pull yeah. the, the top off and then roll the back window down, but... I actually thought it was pretty engaging and pretty fun to drive when I drove it around. I'll be interested to know if that top is still watertight. I've heard that the vast majority of them weren't even watertight from the factory. Oh, so, well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe yours could be the exception. Maybe. Maybe That'd I'll have cool. one of the rare Del Sols with a watertight roof. Yeah. Um, and then for my brother, he he just wanted a big, comfy cruiser. And as some of you, if you've been listening to the podcasts, know, I am a big fan of the Ford Panther platform oh, yeah. vehicles, and so I bought him a Mercury Grand Marquis, uh-huh. and uh, I told him, I was like, tell you what, I'm going to help you get this Grand Marquis. I won't make a penny off of you because you're my brother, but <laughs> good guy. the toll is I get to drive it around until you, because he <laughs> lives in Chicago, until you come out here and pick it up, so you may see uh, next week me show up in a Mercury Grand Marquis that's going to eventually go to my brother's, but I'll Very get to classy. enjoy it for a week or two. So he didn't want a Marauder? Well, I don't think he could afford a Marauder. He had yeah. he had a budget of <laughs> like uh, $4,000 or under, and he wanted something that's going to be reliable. And I was like, well, oh, yeah. And he also said, I want something that's going to be comfy because he's coming from a Toyota Avalon. And so I said, yeah. well, you can't step down in comfort, right? No. You got to go up in comfort. And so you got to go Panther platform. So yeah. I was I was looking for a Lincoln Town Car for him, but there was just nothing fitting in his budget. But we got him a Mercury version, which is nice. a pretty good option, Yeah, I think. I mean, it's another couch on wheels. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, I think we've hit the time where it's time for an ad break. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, then we'll be right back. Yeah. All right, so stay tuned, and we will get right back to the list right after this ad. Cool. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. And welcome back. If you're still watching, thanks. Yeah, and if you're watching on YouTube, you'll notice that the picture behind us has changed because now we're talking about number eight on this list, the Ford Bronco 2. Not the most popular of the Ford Broncos that have ever been made, Um well, Part, partly this, for good reason. These are forgotten off-roaders, right? So exactly. We, if we want to talk about off-roaders that everybody knows about, then we'll talk about the Bronco because they're great. Yeah. But we're going to talk about the ones that people don't like, so it's the lesser loved of the Broncos. Yeah, produced from 1984 to 1990. It was based on the Ford Ranger and made in the same plant in Kentucky, and it was eventually replaced by the Explorer, which you're very familiar with. Yes, which I have a, a 1991 Ford Explorer that I love very dealer, dearly. And everybody, whenever we do a video on that Ford Explorer, there's always Exploder. the same two comments. Exactly. <laughs> the same two comments that pop up. Oh, it's the Ford Exploder, which 
It is not the Exploder. That is the second gen, not the first gen. They didn't have the partnership with Firestone Keep it until straight. the second gen. And Don't make they that always mistake. say, oh, didn't those have a, a big issue with rollovers? Uh, not as bad as the Bronco 2, which we <laughs> which will... Which is a low bar, <laughs> yeah. to be fair. <laughs> That's true. I mean, pretty much every SUV from the early, early 90s and the late 80s had a little bit of a rollover problem, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, other than my pancake Corvette, um, probably. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the Bronco 2, in very 80s fashion, was marketed as a vehicle for men, single people, or young couples. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't. I don't I think, think you could. You, I don't you, think you could do that. Today. No, you couldn't get away with that. I don't that think you today. could advertise a vehicle as being for men. Yeah, and well, and the interesting thing is too when it came out. So it only came as a three door. It was a full foot shorter than the S10 Blazer, and a foot shorter than the two door Explorer that replaced it. And that really kind of tells you as to why it had such a big rollover <laughs> risk. Yeah, yeah, and. For that big disadvantage, though, I do want to say that I miss the era of small off-road SUVs. Absolutely. Not, I agree with you. Not talking about soft rotors, because you can still get a small SUV of sorts. You can get crossovers. But the era when it was still body on frame, you still had four-wheel drive and a low-range transfer case, and you could get manual transmission in a two-door compact SUV because it's just a really cool class of vehicles. And if you think about it, practically speaking, it's a lot of advantages to it. So you could take it up a trail, you could fit it between the trees. It's not gonna be this massive wide thing. Like a full-size Bronco is about as wide as my big dumb Cummins, you know? And I'm, navigating that truck through a trail is terrible. Right. If you have a very expensive new vehicle that's that wide and you're worried about pinstriping it, kind of takes some of the fun out of it. This was an era when you could get something that had some legitimate off-road gear, but it was compact. That's cool. I totally agree. I do miss the days of the compact off-roaders. And I think the manufacturers that are building these off-road machines, and then they take like the, the new Bronco, for example, right? And what they're going to make a more off-roady version. So what do they do to it? They make it wider. It just it makes no sense. It just tells me that the people that are actually engineering and designing these SUVs aren't actually the ones that are taking them on the trails and doing off-roading necessarily because they I don't mean, know. Yeah. I mean, to they go on these designated courses, right? Yeah. And they're not going on these trails that are lined with trees and rocks and, you know, actually going through the forest to where be having fair, a smaller vehicle there, makes sense. There is something to be said for a vehicle with a wider track than, say, a Bronco 2, as we'll get into uh momentarily so it's it's not to say that that these older off-roaders are better than newer off-roaders because i mean a a, a brand new full-size bronco i mean even a bronco sport could could probably run circles around a bronco too on a trail in reverse i just think when you have something that small it makes it much more approachable yeah definitely more approachable know. but to be fair to newer off-roaders there's a lot of advantages to them, and there's a lot of advantages to that width. Okay. Yeah. Well, I get I it. I would say so. Well, so if, if you wanted to get look at the engine options on these, they were okay. You know, oh, you, boy. You, you could have a 2.9-liter V6. Uh, or, or Actually, sorry, the first one was a 2.8-liter V6, and they called them the Cologne V6 because they were actually built 
in Cologne, Germany, which is kind of interesting to me. They build the engine in Germany in an American car and then ship it to the U.S. where they put it in the actual car itself. The first few years of it only had about 115 horsepower. Uh, when they bumped it up to the 2.9, they went up to 140. So if I were looking for one, that'd probably be the route that I would go, which is basically if you go 86, 1986 or newer, uh, you can get that 140. And actually, what I found is um, there was a rare option, a Mitsubishi four-cylinder that was a 2.3-liter turbo diesel and it was only available in 86 and 87. Um, but from what I hear and what I've been reading on them, they weren't very good. Yeah. Seems just just like in general, diesels are very hit or miss. And especially early diesels, there are some really good ones. Uh, but there are also some really, really bad ones. I mean, think back to some of Chevy's old naturally aspirated V8 diesels that were essentially gasoline engines converted. Yeah, it's, it's very hit or miss, mostly miss with early diesels. This engine, I mean, I've not had any personal experience with. Sounds like from what people say, it was probably a miss, but not nearly as much of a miss as this vehicle's handling. And we have uh, quite the story that we pulled from some of our sources online here yeah, so about the stability I, issues. I apologize, it's, it's very long that I wrote here. Um, it's there's it's just so interesting and so in depth uh, of a story about the stability problems that uh, went on with this Ford Bronco. Did you want to get into it, or do you want me to read it? You tell me. I mean, we could either do it word for word, or we could pull some of the highlights out of this uh, this this big quote, basically that we have. Um, but some of the funny things that I I saw when reading it was that. Uh, with Ford's own testing when they were in the design process of this vehicle. Mm -hmm. Apparently, the J-turn test was canceled during testing procedures by Ford's officials out of fear of killing or injuring one of its own drivers. Yeah, and so <laughs> engineering modifications were suggested because of this, right? But the Ford officials declined modifications because they would have delayed here, here's what it says, delayed the marketing of the new vehicle. <laughs> Can you believe that? So the engineers are saying, we literally cannot do testing because we are afraid that we are going to die or get injured <laughs> in testing. And so you should change this vehicle because it's so dangerous. And Ford just goes, well, that would delay the launch of it. So no. <laughs> yeah. And of course, you know, I mean, it, it's it's hard to say definitively what was happening at the time because obviously, you know, Ford themselves would never put out a, a statement like that. So this is, is coming from claims, um, but there were clearly issues with the design process in the Bronco too. And it was reflected in the number of accidents uh, that were had in Bronco twos. And it's part of the reason that the name and and this vehicle got killed off. Yeah, um, so getting into it. So basically, after analysis of SUV crashes of the Suzuki Samurai, a, another small SUV, the US National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, or NHTSA, uh, in 1987, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, so, so they opened a formal study of the Bronco II in 1989, and they found that there were 43 Bronco 2 rollover fatalities in 1987 alone. And compare that to the eight of the Suzuki Samurai. 
So this was this thing was killing a lot of people. And so accidents data in four states showed that the Broncos 2 rollover rate was similar to other SUVs. So the investigation was just closed. <laughs> and then the NHTSA declined to reopen the investigation in 1997 after more Bronco 2 crashes. And it was estimated that 260 people have died from the Bronco 2 rollover crashes, which is several times more than in any similar vehicle made by that time. Yeah, and apparently Ford paid out around about $113 million to settle 334 injury and wrongful death lawsuits. Um, but the company maintained that the rollovers were overwhelmingly caused by bad driving or unsafe modifications to the vehicle. Um, you know, I mean, there's obviously two sides to this this story and the history around the Bronco too. But regardless, um, it's not a vehicle that went down in history as being known for having good handling. So this is a forgotten yeah. off-roader, maybe forgotten for a good reason. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Ford can say that all they want, but think about it this way. Geico actually stopped writing insurance policies for the Bronco too. And by 2001, Time Magazine reported that the notorious Bucking Bronco 2, as they called it, rollover lawsuits had cost the company an estimated $2.4 billion in those lawsuits. So I can see why the Bronco 2 name <laughs> died quickly and fast. Yeah, that went away, and probably for the better. And, and I did put a, an image in there, if you care to show it, of just what does happen on the next one uh, in these rollover accidents. And you can kind of see how, if you're watching on YouTube, the roof kind of caves in and the frame doesn't really protect you. Um, and that's why they have these issues. But yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so sorry to Safety. make it kind of dark. <laughs> Safety in 80s vehicles, not necessarily a high priority. Right. But I think it's important to talk about if you're going to talk about the Bronco too as oh, an yeah. off-roader. It's a it's big just, part of its history. It's a big part of its history, and it's just something to keep in mind if you're going out and buying one. Not necessarily saying you shouldn't, but it is something to keep in mind. Yeah. Now, next on the list is something that's a lot more fun, a lot more cheerful, because this is a soft-top first-generation RAV4. Yeah. So wow. The, these, I know. These, uh, these RAV4s, a lot of people have seen everywhere. In fact, yeah. we had one here. We named it Cole after one of our video yeah. producers. Ours wasn't a soft top. Yeah. And it also wasn't a two-door, and yes. it wasn't manual, and it wasn't all-wheel drive. So it was about <laughs> the least interesting version of the first-generation RAV4. But this, this is arguably the most interesting version. Yeah, I think I think it is really interesting, and they didn't sell a whole lot of them. Imagine and I, that. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that typically with a convertible, right, you get the added benefit of being able to remove the entire roof and have that open-air experience. But in reality, with this one, the convertible top part of it was only on the back. So it's yeah. it's kind of more for the ba the passengers in the back seat to enjoy. Uh, you did have this removable sunroof-ish type panel on top that you could pull out of it. But um, the, the actual convertible part was just on the back half of the roof. You know, many have tried and many have failed in the realm of soft top SUVs and really Jeep 
has done it probably the best. You know? Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. I mean, Jeep. The new Bronco's pretty good, but they've had a lot of problems with their tops, haven't they? Yeah. Well, and they also just, you know, the new Bronco hasn't been doing it as consistently as Jeep has. Jeep has done really well with soft top SUVs. There are a lot of uh, (laughs) past cases of companies attempting soft top SUVs that went really, really horribly. Nissan tried their hand (laughs) at it. Um, what there was the uh, Evoke too, the oh, soft yeah. top Evoke, yeah. Well, there, it wasn't there the Murano Cross Cabriolet. Well, yeah, that, that was that was terrible. the Nissan. Yeah, yeah. It, this this is not that bad. Um, this is fun in its own way, but not surprising to hear that it didn't sell that well. Yeah, I I mean it is interesting if you think about it this way. Like we're talking about Jeeps, and you think of like the Suzuki Samurai, which had a very similar top, or like a geo tracker or whatever. The the thing that I like about this top is instead of it like disassembling like you would on a Jeep roof, it just, just folds down back. like a regular convertible so it's easy to plop it right back up. Got to love that. Yeah, and you could have it with a 5 speed. So if you had a 5 speed soft top RAV4, that means you know how to party. Now, for our YouTube people, you are showing a picture of the back of one of these RAV4s. And the thing that I just caught in this picture that I think is really interesting is someone, I don't know if this was a factory option or not, but somebody put mud flaps on it. Mm. And you see what they had to do with the exaust in that mud flap? It's poking through the mud flap. That's interesting. <laughs> Isn't it? <laughs> that, is, that is quite the decision that somebody made there. Oh! Oh, no. No! <laughs> oh, well, now we're getting a preview of what's to come. <laughs> There we go. All right. Well, anyways, yeah. So the other thing I do like about the RAV4s is the interiors. Um, Although they're very basic and bare bones, they do have some really cool seat patterns going on. Very 90s looking Colorful 90s seats and cloth. I really wish that cloth seats hadn't gone away because especially 90s cloth seats, while they probably weren't as durable as today's cloth seats, today's cloth seats have this harsh kind of scratchy fabric to them they're not they're not like the 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 home furniture soft cloth that you used to get back in the day and these are also super fun colors so yeah i I do miss having fun looking seats especially most Um, of this interior is pretty drab but those seats they really make it rad is the only word for it absolutely yeah all right well so moving on to number six We have, if you're on YouTube, you got a little sneak peek behind the curtain there (laughs) of the Isuzu Vehicross. This is a vehicle that I have actually pined after for a long time. Yes. I think it is just such a unique and interesting piece of history um, that Isuzu came out with. In, In the States, they came out with it in 1999 and only made it through 2001. And a lot of people think, well, it was just a sales uh you know, it was not a sales success. It did terribly, right? No, they intended from the beginning to build very few of them. They wanted it to be a kind of a rare car. And I just think, you know, it's it's a really cool, interesting piece of design that still going down the road to this day, there's nothing out there that looks quite like it. No, it'll turn heads. And this is also the golden era of cladding. As you can see, it's about 50% of this vehicle is cladding. You should talk to uh, our editor, Zach, about the V-Cross at yeah. some point because his dad had one. Oh, he's, nice. He's not necessarily a fan, but it is an interesting bit of automotive trivia. Well, maybe that Definitely. doesn't speak too well of it. He, he had one <laughs> and isn't a fan of it. 
<laughs> well, Zach also doesn't like the G-Wagon, so what does he know? Because oh, G-Wagons okay. are awesome. Uh, but this is a vehicle that I don't know if you can even argue that it's forgotten because was it ever even that known? You know, yeah, even even when common. they were new, even when <laughs> yeah. they were new, you saw this thing rolling down the road, and it turned heads because so few people had them. Yeah. I think they only built like a little over four thousand of them, if uh, I'm not mistaken. Yeah, forty one hundred and fifty three made for the U S. Um, yeah, total just under six thousand five thousand nine hundred and fifty eight. Had a three point five liter V six, two hundred and fifteen horsepower. Had eighteen inch wheels, which is pretty kick ass in two thousand. Yeah, it was um, pretty big for the for back then. Yeah, so. An interesting vehicle, uh, yeah, and, and something that still turns heads to this day. actually had a funny instance with a Via Cross where I was on a press trip with a bunch of other automotive journalists, and we had, I forget what event it was, but all of these cool off-roaders around, and in our hotel parking lot, there was a very, very clean, yellow, completely stock Via Cross, and that stole the show. Really? All, all of us turned completely away from the off-roaders that we were there to actually pay attention to, and we were crowding this Vehicross because we were just thinking, wow, never seen such a clean Vehicross. That's crazy. As goofy as it is, it's still an interesting vehicle to this day. Yeah, and, and these are cars that you can get for... Ten grand, maybe, maybe even, maybe even less, like seven grand. I hope less. Eight grand, depending on <laughs> the amount of miles that are on it's a little there. Little goofy, but but you're talking about a fun. car that has a torque on demand four by four system by Borg and Borg Warner, and it combined a computer controlled all wheel drive system for on road driving and a low gear four wheel drive system for off road driving. And the thing that I think is actually most interesting about the design is the back. So you have that yeah. picture up right now, and so they wanted to incorporate the spare tire into the back rather than the traditional SUVs back then having it mounted, it being on mounted the back. exterior had to be more futuristic than that. Yeah. So it's integrated in this, um, strange mass that is poking out of its, of its backside. Yeah. yeah. It's, and, and in order to do lump. that, you see that rear glass, they had to make that rear glass arched to go around the wheel carrier, which yeah. is just such an interesting piece of design to me. And then it, it actually hindered your rear visibility so much that, oh, I'm in, sure. that in Japan, they offered it with a backup camera option. And it was the first ever vehicle offered from the factory with a backup camera option. Unfortunately, that option never came to the US, but there are some people that have bought that from Japan and brought it over to their Vehicrosses. Yeah, for those that are truly dedicated to the Vehicross. Now, next on the list, we have something else from Japan, Mazda MPV, and this is the first generation, so from 1989 to 1999. And this is not just a regular, everyday minivan. Yeah, and in all fairness, Tommy helped me make this list, but he really only had... In you know, input on about two vehicles. This was one of them. <laughs> this is a vehicle so obscure that even I didn't know about this. The guy that like prides himself in obscure vehicles. <laughs> um, but I have to say, after researching these Mazda MPVs, I am sold. These it's things cool. are so cool. Um, so these were based on a rear-wheel drive Mazda Lucy. Lucy is that how you say it? Platform uh, from Japan, and it was available with a selectable and locking four-wheel drive that had a, a button on the column that you could select into that four-wheel drive. Yeah, so legitimate four-wheel drive in a minivan-shaped package, although it doesn't have the sliding doors. 
It's got regular doors, unlike most minivans. But imagine that, basically the practicality of a minivan shape with a legit four-wheel drive system. Yeah, and a lot of people are going out there and buying these vans from Japan at the time, right? Like the, what is it, the Mitsubishi Delicas um, and some of the other, you know, Toyotas and Hondas that were out at the time. But Ice. Yeah, and, and so many people forget that stateside, here in the U.S., you could get a Mazda MPV that is just as capable off-road as some of those and gave you just as much space as some of those, except you don't have to import it and you can sit on the left side, so when you're going through your McDonald's drive-thru, don't it's have a to reach. More convenient. Yeah, you don't have to reach across. And you could get it with a manual. You can get yeah, you can get it with a manual, and it had a floor-mounted handbrake for you to impress the whole family with your e-brake turns. Yeah, these are very cool. Um, they are cool. So this also had an optional load leveling system, which allowed towing of up to 4,200 pounds in a minivan. You could really tow not in bad. a minivan. No, yeah. not too bad. Um, and so in 1997, the thing, the one that I think is the most interesting looking, unfortunately you can't get these with a manual. Um, they offered the all sport, which had this body cladding and wheel arches on there, which I think actually made it kind of look pretty handsome. (laughs) That's one word for it. Those wheel arches are interesting. Uh, they look, they look like wheel arches that came from an auto parts store. (laughs) I mean, they're color match more or less but they don't really look like they belong do they yeah i'm glad you like them oh but look at that yeah so this one if you're on youtube off-road lights yeah i i found one that had been modified to the way that i would modify it um that's a mean mpv right yeah if you were to pick up an mpv this is what you should do to it it is safari mpv exactly it is built and ready to go uh, it's got those rally lights on top. It's got it's lifted with big old looks like what thirty something inch tires and a bull bar on the front. Yeah, you probably don't want to put too much tire on it because your options were one hundred and twenty one horsepower four cylinder or one hundred and fifty five yeah. horsepower three liter V six. So even with the optional bigger V six, you're not going to have that much torque to turn big tires. But I mean, well, not like you could fit much more tire than this one has on it. Yeah. Well, but that's cool though. Yes. I like that. So I think I would drive that. I think we're gonna I think it's time for our second ad break. Are oh you okay yeah. With that. Yeah. I, I hope you guys will stay with us. We promise we will go right back to the list as soon as we get back. So stay tuned. All right. If you are still with us, thanks. And we're gonna move on thanks. right on to number four for you. Number which four. Is the Geo Tracker. A Geo Tracker. Who doesn't love that? Yes. Yeah, this is another Slightly awkwardly stubby two-door backseat convertible thing. It's kind of like the uh, RAV4 soft top, but it's a Geo Tracker instead. Absolutely. So these were developed in partnership with Suzuki, and they were built in Canada in the same plant as the Suzuki Sidekick, uh, except for 1989, which I thought was interesting. They actually built them in Japan for the first year because the factory hadn't gotten up and running yet. But anyways, the vast majority of these geo trackers that you would find were built in Canada, and they all had a 1.4 liter four-cylinder engine putting out a whopping 80 horsepower. I think it was a 1.6. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. I misread there. 1.6 four-cylinder, 80 horsepower, except if you got the 96 or newer, it up to 96 horsepower. So it was never really a powerful unit. 
No, not especially powerful, but still had some features that made it pretty likable. And even compared to that RAV4 soft top, this, you had a high-low two-wheel drive or four-wheel drive option. So uh, arguably more legit off-roader. And I have seen people who run these pretty hard off-road, have a lot of fun with them, and you can get them unbelievably cheap. I mean, people yeah. are nearly giving these things away. Well, Suzuki Samurais have actually shot up in yeah. value of recent, but um, for whatever reason, that hasn't affected the Geo Trackers as much. So I think it's, yeah. it's well, the, a really good bargain right now. The Samurai is cooler than the Sidekick and, and the Geo Tracker, you could argue. I think Nathan would argue that because he had a Samurai. He liked his Samurai a lot. But no, the Geo Trackers, I'd say for the better, are still very cheap. So if you want something to go beat up on an off-road trail, I mean, I think you could have as much fun with one of these as its price would require from yeah. you. Look at and that. And you can even get it with a hard top with some cool... Wave decal. Like de like typical 90s decals on the side. It's pretty rad. I would also drive sure. that. Yeah. yeah and again, with the manual. interiors, also the, the seats more, look fantastic. More confetti seats, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Hell yeah. So they were pretty cool vehicles. But anyways, so moving on from a really cool vehicle to a vehicle that was Tommy's other suggestion that um, I really don't understand. Huh. Yeah, this is... You know, I think for its time, so this is number three. This is the Jeep Commander from 2006 to 2010. You probably remember it because there was a period of time where you saw them on the road pretty frequently. I think for its time, it had bold, boxy styling. Um, I could potentially see some of the appeal from it, especially if you got it with the optional 5.7 liter Hemi. Uh, sure. But there's also a lot of... I don't know, a lot of disadvantages to this, especially if you got one of these with that optional command view sunroof package. Yeah. 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 I know there were leaking issues with those. I mean, there were a lot of issues with these. So these <laughs> these were basically a Grand Cherokee that they added about two inches to. They were even built in the same factory as the Grand Cherokee. Uh, and then they decided that two inches was enough to add a third row. And so I'm sure you can imagine just how tiny that third row is. I've, I've seen some images of people trying to sit back there, and I think they forgot people had legs <laughs> when they designed, designed that third row because it's literally enough for your torso, but that's about it. There's, there's really no room for the bottom half of you. Um, mm. it, it's quite tiny because the floor on it is as low as the seat itself. Yeah. So you're sitting with your knees up to your face. Uh, while you're sitting in, in the back there. And I have I have a quote here that I thought was interesting. So this started in 2006 and came out in 2010. And Sergio Marchoni, rest in peace, uh, said at the time when they discontinued it that the commander was a vehicle that was unfit for human consumption. This is the CEO, right, that, ran the, that helped run this... Chrysler, which oversaw G, yeah. he said it was unfit for human consumption. He goes, we sold some, but I don't know why people bought them. Not the kind of thing that you expect to hear from a media-trained representative from a manufacturer. I mean, if you were <laughs> to talk to anybody that's at now Stellantis about any of their past product, you know, especially on the record, You'd be hard-pressed to get a quote from them like that. That's a scathing comment <laughs> yeah. about the commander. I, 
I think that really harkens to just how bad he thought they were, at least. And if he's running the company, I think he has some pretty good insight. But anyways, I mean, yeah, these, I mean not to disparage them too much. These did have some good off-road capabilities yeah. with, you know, if you can get it with the Quadra Drive 2, which basically added like skid plates, limited slip differentials to the Quadra Track 2 system. Yeah, and we've seen stories from people, people who have sent us videos and, and articles about their vehicles, or not articles, I guess emails, um, that sometimes turn into articles. We've seen stuff from people who own these and really enjoy them, but yeah, there were definitely some disadvantages to them. Yeah. So anyways, moving on to number two. Number two, <laughs> you cannot argue with the cool factor on this. This is a Chevy S10 Blazer, but not any S10 Blazer. It's the ZR2. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So this was based on the second generation of the S10 trucks from 1995 to 2005. And the ZR2 package was only offered on the two-door models starting in 1996. Which is the way it should be. Absolutely. And... Again, going to the small SUV off-roader, right? If you want to build a capable off-roader, you want something a little bit more nimble, a little bit easier to get over those rocks and obstacles. Lightweight, yep. Exactly. Um, and so this wasn't just any sort of off-road package, right? They did a lot to this thing to make it off-road worthy. Absolutely. I mean, we have on our list here, uh, it, would, uh, it, was, it was actually 3.9 inches wider. It was lifted 3 inches, had larger... 31-inch tires, which is nearly as big as any tire that you could get now on a Chevy truck, and that's back in as early as 95. Uh, larger wheel and axle bearings, front sway bars that were different for the ZR2 model. It had skid plates, special Bilstein shocks, beefed-up rear axle, 4.3-liter V6, 190 horsepower, um, an engine that they made a lot back in the day. Yeah, not as exciting as a V8, but this is also a pretty small SUV, so you wouldn't necessarily expect a V8 in it. Locking rear diff, so a lot of really good running gear for this small off-road SUV. And again, just back to the era of two-door SUVs with real off-road running gear, what what an age that was. It was. and I mean, it, I wasn't... If I guess really around for it, but right. in hindsight, <laughs> for me at least. Well, I was, cool. and they were cool back there you then. Go. Um, still so, cool. if, if and if you're interested to see just how good these things are off road, I actually did a video on our TFL Classics channel because I briefly owned a ZR2, uh, where I took it and a first gen Explorer going head to head through our off road course. So, if you're interested in seeing that, check it out over on uh, the TFL Classics YouTube channel. Um, but yeah, these these are fantastic vehicles. And the other thing that I want to go to before we get to number one is I want to talk about TFL bids. So we have been pretty good at selling some cars lately. We've been getting a lot of submissions, and thank you all for supporting us over at TFL bids. And I just want to say, if you want to sell your cool car, we promise to get it listed and sold faster than any other automotive auction site. And you will talk to me or Alex directly if you submit your car with us. Yeah, exactly. You're not going to get sent to some machine. You're not just going to be lost in a stack of emails. You're going to be, like you said, working with Brendan and my buddy on the motorcycle side, Alex, directly to list and sell your vehicle. And yeah, we've been having a lot of really cool machines 
up on bids recently. Yeah, we even just sold a motorcycle, a Yamaha, yeah. an R1, an R1 motorcycle, big bad R1. Didn't Hell that yeah. thing have 170 horsepower? Oh yeah, I can't R1s even are terrifying. That yeah. is so scary. <laughs> yeah, it's got almost <laughs> as much horsepower as a Chevy Blazer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and something that weighs what 400 pounds? Yeah, yeah, little Maybe. little over 400 pounds. Yeah, that's scary. But yeah, so we'll sell your car, and we do bikes too. So if you've got something interesting. Yeah. You know, send it on over and we'll see if we can get it listed. And if you're looking for a cool classic vehicle, we've always got something live going on there. So check out tflbids.com. Well, anyways, let's move on to number one. And wow. <laughs> what a picture. What a picture you grabbed for that. And I put up the car that I want more than anything right now. Really? That is a Suzuki X90. So. Yes. Just for the record and for my credibility, I had no say over how these vehicles were ranked. I just got <laughs> thrown into the mix here. Tommy said, I'm getting on a plane. You and Brendan do a podcast. So sell me, pitch me the Suzuki X90. <laughs> well, so I love a good, weird, odd vehicle. And this is weird and odd. So Pitch is, if you is think well, about going well so far, yeah. The GeoTracker which you talked lovingly about. Think you about know. the Suzuki Samurai, which you also talked lovingly about. More this or less. is essentially the same vehicle. Just uglier. Just, well, yeah. It, oh. a, face only a, a face only a mother But look could at love. those seats. But you have wow. super rad interior seats. You can get it with a manual transmission, five-speed manual. Uh, it's a two-seat vehicle with T-tops. Imagine having -tops an off-roader that has T-tops. Come on. You know yeah. you want this thing. I've, I've used the word several times in this podcast, aspirational. Uh, nothing is more aspirational than T-tops. You can ask <laughs> anyone who's still rocking a mullet, and they will confirm that. Yeah, okay. I, I can see some appeal. It's a little hard for me personally to get past this, this bubbly uh, exterior styling, but... Those seats go a long way. Yeah, it's definitely an unconventional styling <laughs> design choice that they made. Because this it's actually replaced the Samurai, which was a hugely successful Bold. vehicle for yeah. Suzuki. And this fell very flat for them. And I think it's because, I mean, it, sure, it wasn't a great-looking vehicle. <laughs> uh, but you think it was unique. It was different. No one else has really done anything like it since, probably for good reason. Um it, you know, <laughs> the strangest it's thing. It's just an interesting vehicle that they didn't sell many of them, so it's pretty rare, but still pretty cheap. You can get these for like five thousand bucks. Five thousand? Yeah. Oh God, that's a, a raw deal. <laughs> Why? Mean, I think it's pretty cool for five thousand bucks. You can get a pretty capable off-roader and take the roof off. My, most of the roof. My question is, why does the roof line not go all the way back? like pretty much every other SUV-ish type thing that exists. Why is it half sedan, half I'm guessing that's for SUV. rollover standards. So I'm guessing you well, probably had to well, have some sort of structural integrity back well, yeah, then. Yeah, but they didn't have to have this weird trunk deck lid. Like it's, I don't know. <laughs> this is very strange. I think this it car is. is confused about what it is. <laughs> yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe I'm confused weird. about what I want in a car, but, you know, it's... <laughs> that could also be. I just, I love weird, odd vehicles that are like, 
people just don't realize how rare they are and how interesting they are, but you can get them for super, super cheap because as a principal, I generally don't buy cars for more than 5,000 bucks. And this fits within my budget. <laughs> yeah, well, if, if your pitch is based around it being weird, then I would say your pitch went well. Uh, because it is weird. Yeah, it's, <laughs> this is a strange vehicle. Um, you know, I guess it depends on this top 10 list how you want to rank number one. Is, is this the most forgotten off-roader? It's probably a contender. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's the most forgotten off-roader. I mean, I I'm will sure say... I'm sure there's some diehard X90 fans out there. I'm sure. That, and that I have just upset greatly. Well, I the, apologize. The general public, though will agree with you because a nobody bought them and b by motor trend it was literally named the worst car of the 90s wow period like so they, they made a company. whole list and this was number one as the worst car of the 90s yeah i'm i am sure that there are some diehard x90 supporters out there and i'll tell you what you shoot us an email and come by the studio and we will film your X90, and Absolutely. we will relay to the world how misunderstood your wonderful vehicle is. And if uh, you, yeah, and if you want to sell it, we'll help you sell it on uh, TFL bids. Or if if you submit better. it, I might just buy it. Yeah, 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 very likely. Or maybe I'll just be a bidder, because uh, what, what would your wife think if you came home with one of these? Uh, would she be concerned for your health? I've <laughs> I've come home with so many weird cars. You've come home that, with worse. Yeah, that she's just kind of at the point to where she's like, "Well, okay." That's Throws what her you hands do. up and says, "You yeah. know, it is what it is." You're, I don't it's understand Brendan. it, but it's Brendan. You know, yeah. <laughs> you can take the guy out of the weird car. Exactly. But you can't take the weird car out of the guy. Well, like I own two Mini Coopers now, which she doesn't understand why I would have owned <laughs> one Mini Cooper, much less two. So yeah, <laughs> I had a brief experience with an R53 Mini Cooper, and um, it ran its course. I sold it, and I'm happy to no longer have that car. <laughs> yeah, I, I I can understand why people don't like them. <laughs> But I also understand why the people that do like them, we like them a lot, a I, lot, a lot. Yeah, I traded my Mini Cooper for a 1988 Corvette. Shockingly, fewer rattles and more reliable. <laughs> yeah. I guess it's not shocking that it's more reliable, but yeah, fewer rattles from a 1988 Corvette than at least my R53 Mini Cooper, you know, which was in decent shape. You know what we need? We need a skid pad. Yeah. We need like a skid well, pad over at TFL Classics because I'll bet that that Mini would keep up with your Corvette. Maybe maybe not quite as many Gs as a Corvette. Maybe, I don't know. Oh, through turns. Through turns. Okay. That's what I'm, I'm not saying in a drag race. No, it gets smoked yeah, yeah, in a yeah. drag race. Right. But pulling yeah. Gs yeah. in a turn, I think that that Mini would 100%. beat a lot of cars that people would be surprised about. As advanced as my Corvette's monoleaf uh, suspension is, and it's very advanced at that, uh, I'm sure that the much more modern Mini Cooper would outhandle <laughs> my front engine V8 L98 1988 Corvette. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, if there's any amount of straightaway, yeah. I'm going. Well, tell yeah. you what, I will race you to 150,000 miles. To 150, I don't know that I'll own it that long. <laughs> I, I change my cars out your more benefit. often than I change out my jeans. So <laughs> That's I, true. 
<laughs> the, the pair of jeans I'm wearing here, I've owned longer than I owned any vehicle that I've currently owned in my entire fleet. That's so, shocking. I've only ever yeah. sold two vehicles. Yeah. The mm. Mini Cooper and my first car, my Mazda. Wow. Yeah. That's, I've, I've never sold one of my motorcycles. Um, I only, yeah, I, I buy vehicles and then I think, this is good. I'm going to hold on to it. Yeah, very different styles. I think that too, like my Ford Explorer that I bought, I've been telling everybody, I love driving that thing. I love driving that thing. And today for the first time, I thought, oh, maybe it's time to sell it. I've only had the thing for like, what, six months, five months, which is long for me. Yeah. That's a long time to own a cheap car for well, me. Well, it's, it's the difference between Brennan and I. I'll, I'll buy a vehicle for $10,000 uh, in nice shape and then i'll just go down the rabbit hole of i initially tell myself i'm not going to do this and then i go down the rabbit hole of pouring more money into making it even better until i'm to the point where i've spent more on it than i could probably get out of it and i like it too much and i've put too much time and energy into it and i don't want to sell it and i enjoy those vehicles enough that it's worth the amount that i spent on them because there's no alternative vehicle i could get for the same amount of money or even a bit more that I would enjoy more, but it makes it impractical to buy and then sell. Yeah. Whereas for five grand, you get to try a bunch of stuff, and then it's like, oh, I should probably move this along. Exactly. <laughs> would be yeah. my guess. Yeah, it's <laughs> just when I've had my fill of it, then I'm like, all right, what's next? Yeah. Because I'm I'm like the kid that uh, collected all the Hot Wheels car. I want to try like everything. Yeah. I want to have owned cool. like every type of car out there and. Everything that I can afford and swing, I want to. I want to own it all. You should get a Corvette. I'm convinced. At it's, some point, they're I, great. Well, here's I love the thing. I, I told my wife like because the C5 Corvette that we have here yeah. at TFL, I was telling Roman how much I liked it. I was like, it's I'm nice. so surprised how nice and comfy this thing is. I it's love driving nice, it. Yeah. And I told, and then Roman goes, Well, you know, when we're done with it, you can buy it for if you want for what we paid for it. And I was like, Yeah, mm, which is like fourteen intriguing. grand. Yeah, yeah, it would be expensive for me. Fourteen grand yeah. is, is a lot of money for me to shell for a car. But also, I brought that idea home to my wife. And she liked it. And she immediately said, oh, this is a Mustang household. There are no Corvettes allowed at this household because she's a big Mustang fan. Guess she likes going slow. I guess. Uh, well, I like Mustangs too, but I also, yeah, I like, also Corvettes. like Mustangs. But now I own a Corvette, but, yeah. so I have to be that guy. But she is the type where she is very, like, diligently loyal to what it is that she likes. And she will literally fist fight you if you say otherwise. And I don't want to get into a fist fight with my wife because she no. won't beat me. Yeah. You know what's funny is that uh, my, my girlfriend had a Mustang for a long time. And she's also a Mustang gal. She's got the Mustang t-shirt. She's got Mustang posters. And I give her so much grief for it, which she doesn't appreciate. But I think it's funny. Well, anyways... Thanks for listening to us ramble. Sorry yeah. you missed out on Tommy, but it was cool to have Case along here to Ooh. spice things up a little bit, keep it Big a little time. bit different. And uh, if you want to see more content like this in shorter form, in video form, check out TFL Classics where both Case and I do a lot of fun videos there. In fact, I think coming up soon is, or may have just come out, is the, depending on when this goes live, is a... Uh, we did a little hill climb in Tommy's Citroen 2CV. Oh, yeah. I think that is coming up pretty soon. But, yeah, we got a lot of interesting things over there. So if you want to check out things like that or his Corvette, check it out. For everything else, check out all TFL. And this has been Brendan. And Case. Take care. At Parker, our purpose is simple. 
We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.